This is a Federal News Network podcast. One of the biggest concerns among cybersecurity people is the advent of quantum computers. The theory is quantum will be so powerful it will easily crack encryption algorithms conventional computers would take thousands of years to crack. Now the National Institute of Standards and Technology has issued four cryptographic algorithms researchers believe are quantum resistant. Here with details, NIST mathematician Dustin Moody. Dr. Moody, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on too, Tom. Now these algorithms that NIST came out with, first of all, how were they developed? How do you develop a thing like this when quantum computing itself is not really a gelled known quantity here? Yeah, that's a good question. What researchers in the field have been doing is they look at all the known quantum algorithms. Those are algorithms that would work on a quantum computer and would be very efficient, very fast, faster than they would on our conventional computers. And they take all those known attacks and they come up with new crypto systems and they check that none of those attacks seem to work. They don't provide any advantage over what we already know. And research in this field has been going on for a few decades. So there's a few different areas where people have kind of tended to focus as to what type of structures you can use that you can make crypto out of that will not, a quantum computer won't help you in attacking them. Right. So it's almost like reverse engineering, in a sense, on what we know that quantum computing itself would be capable of then. Yeah, it is a little bit. Uh, You're trying to find the, the holes that a quantum computer won't be able to help you with. And what do we know about the status of quantum computing, first of all? I mean, it's, you hear people saying they're using quantum techniques, but are there actual practical quantum computers in the world that we know of yet? Well, if you look in the, the media, every so often you'll see headlines from big companies like Google and IBM that are, are working on building these quantum computers, and they're, they're making progress. Their, their chips and computers are getting larger and larger. They're still small enough that you can't do anything too impressive with them yet. They, they don't come anywhere close to threatening cryptography yet. There are some products that you can do with them, but in regards to cryptography, it's still in the development stage of building these quantum computers. But progress is being made, and it's estimated that it could be anywhere from 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, until a big enough quantum computer is built. Well, these things tend to either accelerate and come faster than people expected, or they go the way of nuclear fusion, I guess. Yeah, there are some people who think there will be some physical problem that we just can't figure out how to engineer. So there are people who believe we'll never have one. Most experts tend to think that it's just a matter of time until we get one. And tell us exactly what NIST did come out with this month and what, say, a cybersecurity practitioner can do with this information. To prepare for this threat, NIST has been aware of the threat for quite a while with regard to some of the cryptography that gets used around the world. So about six years ago, we started basically a big international competition to find and then select and standardize new crypto systems that would provide protection from these quantum attacks. And just a week ago or so, we announced the results of that competition. We announced the four algorithms that we have selected that we will standardize, and that means that in not too long, you'll be able to start using these algorithms, putting them into your products, and they will provide the protection that you need in the future when quantum computers are available. Do these algorithms exist as a piece of code that people can simply take? So as part of the contest, they had to give us complete design specifications that explained how the algorithm worked. And they also, yes, they did give us code, both reference code and optimized code. We don't want people to take that code and to start putting it into production yet. As we're writing the standard, it's possible we might just make some very tiny tweaks 
So we recommend that people start testing them, becoming aware, getting familiar with them, but wait until the final standard is published and then you can start using it in production. But the primary users of this would be commercial companies that produce cryptographic products using the algorithms embedded in some way. So yeah, the companies that provide the cryptography, they definitely are aware of this and they will transition to provide these new algorithms. But the larger audience is everybody uses cryptography in some way, even if you don't really know that you are. So organizations need to make sure that the products that they use, their vendors, that they're aware of the threat and that they have a plan for this upcoming transition. We're speaking with Dustin Moody. He's a mathematician at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. When the final version comes out, and it's kind of kosher, and people were to create cryptography based on these algorithms, are they suitable for use on conventional computing platforms in the meantime until quantum does come along? Yes, these algorithms we selected, they are defined to run on our conventional computers. When quantum computers are finally around, it's going to be nation states or big companies that have them. They're not going to be in your pocket and your phone, things like that. So these algorithms are designed to run on conventional computers. They just happen to protect against anyone who has a quantum computer and would try and attack you. Yeah, just what we need is a quantum iPhone to look at Snapchat or something. (laughs) But what is the interaction between, say, a product based on these new algorithms and the FIPS standard algorithms that are accepted in the national security community and the intelligence community? It sounds like it could upend the product and certifications in that whole world. Yes. Eventually, people will need to transition to these new algorithms. There will be updated guidance from NIST and from national security levels where you have to transition to these algorithms. As a way to get there, there's been a lot of interest in what's called a hybrid mode, and that's where you combine one of these new post-quantum algorithms that provide protection along with one of the currently standardized algorithms that we have today. You'll take a small performance hit for doing that because you'll be doing two different crypto algorithms, but security-wise, you're guaranteed that as long as one of those two algorithms is safe, you'll also be protected. So people are interested in this as a way to transition just until we gain more experience with these new algorithms and get used to using them. That way you'd be able to still get validated, get certified because you're using a standardized algorithm, but you could get experience with the new quantum-resistant algorithms and transition to them at some point in the future. And are these in the open source domain? That is to say, suppose Igor the hacker from Russia took the new quantum-resistant algorithms and somehow could they engineer a way to get around them for future attacks in quantum? Yes, they are open in that sense. That's part of the beauty of modern cryptography is you assume that your enemy knows exactly the complete design specification. They don't know your secret key that you have, but you assume they know what your crypto system is, exactly how it works. So yeah, the specifications for how to implement it, they're online, they're open, they've been on our website for the past six years. Same with the code, and that's kind of the cool thing of modern cryptography is that even knowing that, they still provide protection from Igor as long as you're implementing it as described in the standard. And just out of curiosity, what does it take to develop these? Do you sit there in front of a giant chalkboard like Manhattan Project, or is this purely mathematical type of computational function to develop these algorithms? How do you go about this work? It takes a team, I would say. At their core, these new post-quantum algorithms are based on mathematical structures, so there will typically be mathematicians involved, but you also need to know what the latest quantum attacks are. So there are people that deal with quantum algorithms. You also will 
code up these algorithms and want to optimize the performance. So you'll have computer scientists and software engineers. So the submission teams for these algorithms often had 10 or so people on them, often coming from a variety of backgrounds, uh, math, computer science, physics, engineering, cryptography, coming together to design these algorithms. And they are coded in conventional computer code language? Yep. And they were all in, I want to say C or C++, I believe, when they turned them into us. Got it. And if someone is, say, majoring in mathematics, does this development that just came from this, these four crypto-resistant algorithms, does that still leave room for people that want to apply their mathematics skills in encryption and in cybersecurity? Is there still room here for doing this? Oh, certainly. The work is not over once we've selected these four algorithms. Cryptography over time, people find new attacks, they break things, and then you have to come up with new algorithms, or computers get better and you have to make them more efficient, and you need to design new parameter sets. So there definitely is room for people who are interested in the area to continue to work in this field. It's actually one of the hottest research areas in mathematics right now, and I think it will continue to be for at least a decade or so. And do you get these kinds of questions at barbecues? No, the average person typically doesn't know what kind of cryptography their computer or their phone is using, but they are usually pretty interested when they ask what I do and I start telling them about it. It's a pretty fascinating topic. All right. Well, as someone who struggled with algebra 50 years ago, I admire you. Dustin Moody is a mathematician at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me. Glad to have been able to talk with you. Thanks. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what? Not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. is always on but you shouldn't be put junk sleep to bed during mattress firm's dream December sale get a king for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $700 on Sealy. only at mattress firm